Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, before we get started, I just want to let you know, uh, Art's been letting you know that I have a book table in the back with some books that I've written and some Bible studies. Uh, two that I just want to highlight. One is a men's book called Facing Goliath uh, that uh, I wrote a couple years ago about just the Goliaths we face as men and how we can let the battle belong to the Lord and win the spiritual battle. So it's kind of a spiritual warfare book specific to men and some of the issues that men face. This is a book my wife wrote, uh, Seek, a, woman got, a Woman's Guide to Meeting God. It's used in a lot of churches and small groups. So these are just two of the resources. There's quite a few back there. One is for free. So if you don't pick this up, it's kind of like, come on, it's free. It's freebie. It's a little article pamphlet I wrote called The Resurrection Fact or Fiction. The greatest miracle ever demonstrated in the Bible is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is what uh, the Apostle Paul comes back to over and over again as the kind of final proof, the evidence, the validation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And uh, I just go through what are some of the theories that people have to explain away the resurrection and how those theories just don't hold up to scrutiny, what the Bible actually says about the resurrection and how you can actually believe in it. I first got kind of I don't know, energized with uh, understanding that back when I was in college uh, when uh, Josh McDowell came to speak at our campus. How many of you here have heard of Josh McDowell? Yeah, Evidence Demands a Verdict, More Evidence Demands a Verdict, Revenge of Evidence that Demands a Verdict, all those books. So here's a funny story, this, which tells you a little bit about me, and um, then you may not want to continue to listen to all, all that I have to say. But uh, Josh... Uh, his the book, Evidence Demands a Verdict, had a real profound impact on my early Christian growth. And he did this teaching series on the resurrection that back in the day when we had cassette tapes, we all duplicated them and listened to all these cassette tapes. And I listened to it over and over again, and I actually memorized like the introduction to his talk on the resurrection. And it, I'm going to give it to you. So I, I memorized his talk in, on the resurrection. So now fast forward years later, this just happened last year. I was with a buddy of mine, and, and Josh McDowell lives down kind of close to, to where, where I live. And um, I'm with a buddy of mine and his wife and, the, and my wife, and we, we go out to the show, and the show's over, and my buddy and I got to go to the bathroom. So we walk into the men's room, and there's three urinals, and my buddy's over here, and I'm here. And this guy walks in, and he stands at this urinal, and I look over, it's Josh McDowell. Now, standing in a men's urinal is always kind of awkward. Like, do you talk to somebody? Do you mind your own business? I mean, you know, that's, that's a whole other issue. But I look at him. I see my, Josh McDowell. He looks at me, and this is what I do. After 500 hours of intensive research in the libraries of England and the United States, I've come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of those vicious, wicked, heartless hoaxes voiced upon the minds of men and women today. Or it's the most fantastic fact of history. And Josh McDowell looks at me and just goes, <laughs> turns around, washes his hands, and walks out of the restroom. He doesn't even acknowledge that I just gave his whole spiel on the resurrection. I bet he went home and told his wife, like, there was some wacko in the men's room at the theater quoting me. I don't know. I thought he'd kind of laugh and say, hey, who are you, and blah, blah, blah. No, he just shook his head and walked out anyway. If you want to know some things about the resurrection and how it can strengthen your faith, and by the way, this is a great tool to give to somebody that you know that's not yet a believer, to give them some intellectual basis for faith around the most important issue of the gospel, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, uh, let me pray. Father, thank you for this evening and for our opportunity to look at your word, which is true, and uh, you've promised we shall know the truth, and the truth will set us free. We want to walk in the freedom of Christ, uh, the, the freedom of, of spiritual victory, uh, the freedom of shining our light uh, of Christ to, to people who need to know Jesus. And, and, and that all is based on knowing who we are, and may we, may we understand that. May we know clearly from God's Word what it means to be in Christ and, and be able to experience uh, that identity in Christ. Scripture says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away, all things have become new. May we walk in the newness of Jesus, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I, was, uh, I, I talked to someone 
today um, about what I was teaching on this week, and, and it kind of, kind of opened up a whole conversation of the importance of identity and where we draw our identity from and, and what's the basis for why we believe what we believe about our identity. And it reminded me of a conversation I had years ago. I was pastoring a church in Thousand Oaks, and one of our elders uh, came into my office one day and said, um, you know, Pastor JP, my, my father-in-law is just killing me. He's, he's a skeptic. He's always asking me questions about the faith. He's, he's, it's bugging my family. It's upsetting my kids because he, he, doesn't, he doesn't ask it in a real, like, conversational seeking way it's like he's trying to make a point that we're we're idiots for for believing the gospel and so I finally just told him you know what my pastor could answer any of your questions would you be willing to meet with him and he said yes so he told me this I go you told him I could answer any of his questions and he said yeah I, I think you can't I go bro there's all kinds of questions I don't know the answers to. He goes, yeah, but you know more than me. Will you meet with them? And I said, okay, okay, okay. So I agreed to meet with my friend's father-in-law. So uh, I call him up. I said, this is, you know, Pastor JP, you, your son-in-law. And he goes, oh, yeah, sure. And so he invited me over his house. So I went over his house. Uh, his name was Jack. Um, and, and you know how you, there's some people you like right away. I like this guy right away. I just... Just something about him. It's like, oh, I, I like you. You're, you're, you're a good guy, you know. So I'm joking around with him and talking to him. And the whole time, I'm asking him a lot of questions to try to find out who are you and what is your background and kind of where do you come from and why do you think the way you think. And then um, finally, I, I reached into my backpack and I pulled out a yellow pad and I put it down. I said, okay, Jack, we both know why I'm here. I'm the hired gun that has been sent on mission by your son-in-law to answer all your questions. And Jack kind of laughed, and I said it sarcastically. I said, so tell me, what are, what are some of your questions? And he told me, so, and I wrote them down. And he said a few, and I wrote them down. He said a few more, I wrote them down. I had probably a list of about 20 questions down, and I looked at him. I said, well, I think some of these I could answer pretty, pretty well for you. Uh, others of them, I... I, I have an opinion. You may not agree with me, but I have an opinion on them. And there's some, quite frankly, I'll be real honest. I, I don't, I don't know that I have an answer. But you know, I don't know that anybody else does either. But I don't, I don't know that I have an answer. But before I even try to answer your questions, Jack, let me ask you a question. He said, "Okay." I said, um, "Why do you believe what you believe?" And he said, well, "What do you mean by that?" I said, well, Jack, obviously you're a smart guy, and you have some very fixed beliefs about religion and philosophy and life. Have you ever thought why you believe what you believe? And he, he said, no. I said, well, I've actually thought about that a lot. In fact, I teach a course the time I was teaching at Viola, and I said, I teach a course course called Christian worldview and we talked about wor we talked about worldviews and and in philosophy there's actually a discipline known as epistemology which is kind of the justification of knowledge why you believe whatever it is you believe so people believe different things but the reason they believe different things is they have a different basis for what they believe so why you believe what you believe actually determines what you believe he goes wow that's interesting I said yeah so let me ask you again do you know why you believe what you believe what is your authority what is your ultimate source of authority? He goes, I never thought about it. I go, well, I thought about it a lot, and I think it's the biggest difference between me and you. And he goes, really? Yeah. So I, I said, uh, in fact, I think I know what your ultimate authority is, Jack. He goes, well, I want to know. And I, I did the whole, like, do you really want to know? He goes, yeah, I want to know. Do you really want to know? Yeah, I want to know. I said, okay. So... I wrote down on the yellow pad, what makes sense to Jack? And he goes, what do you mean? I go, you're a smart guy, Jack. You've read a lot. You've read the Bible. There's parts of the Bible you agree with, so you, you believe those things. There's parts of the Bible you don't agree with, so you don't believe those things. You've read other religious works. There's things that you believe, so you agree with that, that stuff, and the stuff you don't believe, you don't. So ultimately, if it makes sense to you, you believe it. And that's your ultimate source of authority. He got a big smile. 
He goes, yeah, that, that, that's me. Yeah, I like that. I like that. And I said, Jack, um, I, I've got a different set of uh, base of authority. He said, okay. And I wrote down God's word. And I said, I, I don't claim to know everything that's written in the 66 books of the Bible, but um, I, I want to study it and I want to understand it. I certainly don't claim to live 100% consistently with everything that's in the Bible, but I've come to a place in my life that when I see something in the Bible and I don't think that way, I change the way I think to be in agreement with the Bible. If I find something in the Bible that's telling me how to live, I try to adjust my life to live according to what's in the Bible because the Bible has authority. And he goes, yeah, that makes, I, he goes, I understand that. I can I could see how that's true for you. So I said, Jack, now let me ask you another question. He said, okay. Jack, for you, your source of authority is what makes sense to you. He goes, yeah. Have you ever been wrong? And he goes, what do you mean? I go, have you ever thought something and you sincerely thought it only to get more information later and realize you were wrong in the way you thought about it? And he goes, yeah, sure, all, all the time. I said, Jack, I like my source of authority better than your source of authority. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, Jack, if your source of authority were the ultimate authority, then really every person on the planet should try to find out what makes sense to Jack, and then we all believe whatever makes sense to Jack. Or worse than that, your source of authority then gets diffused out, and all of us ought to live by, well, what makes sense to me? So every person on the planet just ought to live by what makes sense to me. What do you think the world would be like? Go, oh, it should be chaos. I go, exactly. There's got to be a source of authority that's outside of us, that's transcendent, that has more authority than whatever we think, because we can get it wrong. He stood there and went, hmm. I think you're right. I think you're right. I went on and gave him a little evidence for the authority of Scripture, the historical reliability of the Bible. We never got once to any of the questions that were on his yellow legal pad. But I made him promise that he would stop bugging his son-in-law and stop bugging his family with all of his questions. And if he had any real questions, he could come to me and we could talk about it. You see, I say that story because the source of what we believe about our identity has got to be the Word of God. Because culture and the world and the devil are going to tell us all kinds of things that are only going to mess us up. Jesus said about the evil one that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So anything that's killing your sense of joy, that's stealing your faith, that's destroying your relationships, that's from the evil one. So thoughts about yourself that are, that are contrary to what God says are not from God. Remember, we talked about our first time together. Identity determines destiny. So we need to see our identity based upon what God says is true. Because as people, there are, we live in a culture where people are very much struggling about their identity and who they are and what does it mean to be who they are. And the reason they're struggling is they're not drawing the source of their identity from God's word. So the basis for what we believe about ourselves is the word of God. Because Jesus said, if you abide in my words, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So we've got to look at the truth of God's word to understand it. So tonight, this is what we're talking about. We, we looked at Romans chapter 5 and talked about identity determines destiny. We looked at last night, Ephesians chapter 1, and talked about what's true about our identity is we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And now we're going to look at a few scriptures um, to, to establish the fact that we have been united with Christ. We've been united with Christ. Um, and this spiritual truth is so powerful, it's in several places in Paul's writings, but it establishes what it means to be a new creation and establishes how to live a life of freedom and power uh, in, in following Jesus because literally it's the resurrected Jesus living through us. And, and, and that, that happens when we come to understand how we've been united with Jesus. But I want to tell you another, a, a story that, that kind of reinforces something I said last night when I talked about being a cheese and cracker Christian. Remember that little story about being on the, on the, on the, uh, the, the boat? Well, this is a true story. 
There was a man named Ira Yates who in the late 20s bought a lot of land in Texas. He was going to be a sheep farmer. But uh, as the 20s came to a close and the 30s hit, uh, what was that the time of in U.S. history? The, the Great Depression, right. And so that just devastated his plans, and the Dust Bowl hit at that time too. So here's Farmer Yates with this mortgage on this land and these scrawny sheep, and he had to live on government subsistence to live and was at the point of defaulting on his mortgage when some oil wildcatters came to him and said, we'd like to just test a whale uh, on your land to see if there's any oil. So he signed a lease and said yes, and the rest is history. Basically, they found the largest oil deposit in all of Texas on Farmer Yates's land. And as of today, Yates Oil is still in the top 10 oil-producing fields in the United States. So he went from poverty to being one of the richest men in the world. But the point was, he owned the mineral rights as soon as he bought the land. He had all that oil while he was living in poverty. And it wasn't until he came to understand what he actually had that it transformed his life. And that's the way a lot of believers are. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are united with Christ, co-crucified with Christ, co-resurrected with Christ, co-seated with Christ. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. All of these things are true, and they are life transformational. But if we don't know the truth, truth can't set us free. You've got to know it to be able to set free, be set free by it. So the truest thing about us is what God says is true. And what God says is that we've been co-crucified, co-resurrected, and co-seated with Christ. I want to look at some scripture, then I'm going to draw some conclusions. So, first of all, Galatians 2.20. It's a familiar verse maybe to some of us. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul, speaking representative of, of every believer says that we have been, cru been crucified with Christ. Now, Paul phrases this. Remember last night I talked a little bit about grammar? He phrases this in what's known as the perfect tense. The perfect tense in Greek implies completed action in the past that has ongoing results into the present. Something that was completed in the past that continues to affect and be operational in the present. So somewhere in Paul's past, he was crucified with Christ, and that being crucified with Christ was still true for him as he was writing this statement. Every one of us, at that very moment of salvation, were crucified with Christ. And we continue to be people who have the spiritual benefits of being crucified with Christ. It's continually true. It is a truth of our spiritual position in Christ. It's the truest thing about us. We, uh, we've been crucified with Christ, and Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So not only have we been crucified with Christ, but Christ lives in us. I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me. That, that, that's the New Testament, the simplest New Testament statement of what it means to be a Christian. I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me. I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Well, well, what does that mean? He's not speaking about his body. He's speaking about his old self. Remember when we looked at our first um, talk together, we looked at Romans chapter 5, and we said in Romans chapter 5, we all came into this world with a spiritual identity in who? Adam. The old Adamic I, that old person, the old self, the old man, depending on how you translate certain New Testament passages, our old self, who we were as people dead in sin, that was crucified with Christ. And now Christ lives in us, and he says, the, now, the life I now live, so he's, it's a different I now. <laughs> the old I died with Christ. The new I is the new person I am in Christ. Me, my spirit being renewed and made alive. My new identity. 
the life I now live in the body that's in my physical body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So this is a faith proposition. You have to believe what God says is true. You have to believe that's truer than any lie you've been told about who you are. See, faith is believing that what God says is true actually is true. Faith is accepting God's truth over every other opinion that might be presented to us. Faith is saying, what God says is true, even if I don't feel like it. Remember, uh, anybody see Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. All right, that's when the one with Sean Connery in it. And they get to the very end, and he's trying to find the Holy Grail, the, the, the cup that Jesus actually uh, used, and he's in that cave. Do you remember this scene? He's in the cave, and he has to do all these kind of biblical puzzles and work them out. And one of them, it says he has to take a leap of faith, and there's a big cavern, and he looks like, and he has to get to the other side. And if he followed his eyes, he thought he would be stepping down to his death, but it says in order to, the, 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 the next step in the step to get to the Holy Grail said, you have to take the leap of faith. So he steps out. And in that scene in, in Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail, or the Last Crusade, it, the an- camera angle switches. And as it switches, you see there's an optical illusion that there's actually a, a stone bridge that goes all the way across, but it's the same color as the, ca- uh, as the cavern. He couldn't see it with his eyes, but in faith, he stepped out onto it, and then he walked all the way across. Sometimes faith is like that. You, you, don't, you don't actually see it. I, I wish it wasn't the case. I always want it to be clear before me, right? I want, God, I will follow you to show me exactly where I'm supposed to step. It, it's like in, in Joshua chapter 4, when God uh, brought the children of Israel into the promised land. He said to Joshua, I'm going to do a, mirac- a, a miraculous thing. I'm going I'm to part the Jordan River. So I want you to get all the people lined up, and I want you to get the priests and have them carrying the ark, and I want you to go across the Jordan, and I'm going to part the Jordan, and you're going to go to the other side, and then you're going to conquer all the people on that side, and that's going to be the land. You're going to inherit the promised land. Joshua charges up the troops. The priests, you know, they get all excited. They get their holy garb on, and they've got the ark, and they're marching, and all the people are marching behind them, and they're coming up to the Jordan River, and the Jordan River isn't parting. But they've got the Word of God. He said, I'm going to part the Jordan. You're going to walk across. They get closer. It doesn't part. They get closer. Can you put yourself in the shoes of one of those priests, the priest that's at the very front carrying the ark, thinking, if that Jordan doesn't part and I step into it, the weight of this ark is taking me under the water and I'm going to drown. If I get scared and I let go of the ark, God's going to strike me dead. He was pretty desperate at that point in time. Come on, God, part the Jordan. If you know the story, the scripture is very specific. It says the Jordan parted at the very point where the sole of his sandal hit the water. Boom. There's something there for all of us. It's at the very point of our obedience that God's power is released, but our obedience is always a step of faith. So Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. How do I live? I live by faith that this is really true. God said it. I believe it. Because the truest thing about me is what God says is true. Okay, let's look at Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, verses 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Um, How many of you have been baptized. Okay, how many of you, your church practice, your church tradition is immersion baptism? They go under the water, they come up out of the water. Okay. Baptism's a big deal. But for many of us, we, we, it's just another church ritual. And we fail to see the significance of it as Paul positions it here in the scriptures. 
Um, so we, uh, we, baptism is a big deal at, at, our, at our church. We've always, we always have a big party around baptisms, and we have, you know, we, if we have, we, when, in the early days, we met in a high school, so we had this little blow-up little pool. We baptized people in it. But we live close to the beach, so then once a year, we would go down to the beach and have a big baptism. And then since we're at the beach, we're like, let's have a big picnic and let's have a barbecue. So then we just all start calling it a baptecue. So we have a baptecue every year. It's a barbecue with a baptism. So we got our baptecue coming up here in a couple weeks when I get back. And it's always like, it's just, just big. A lot of, everyone comes out. We got a lot of, it's just a lot of energy, a lot of great energy. And we make much of teaching what baptism is all about. It's not just something you do to join a church. It's not just something you do because you're following a ritual. No, it symbolizes what has happened to you as a Christian. You died with Christ going under the water. You've been raised up to live a resurrected life coming up out of the water. It means that. That's what Paul says it actually symbolizes. We died with Christ. Our old self, the old person that we were in Adam, was nailed to the cross, and then we, we've been fully united with Jesus' resurrection. We've got resurrection life in us as, as, as Christians. This is what Paul is, is, is uh, talking about, and he, he argues from that. This is in verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now we, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Christ. So we've been united with Christ's death and resurrection. And unfortunately, there's a translation here. That's, this is the New American Standard. And unfortunately, the way they've translated one of these verbs gives us the wrong impression. Because it says, uh, for we know that if we have been crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Well, if my body of sin has been done away with, that, I would think that would mean I won't sin anymore. I'm, I'm going I'm to see who's really discerning in this audience. Do you think I sin? Yes, I haven't, I haven't stopped sinning. I don't sin as much as I used to. And if you were with us uh, Sunday morning, I said, this side of heaven, we won't be sinless, but as we are growing and tra being transformed more and more into Christ's likeness, we sin less. See, it, that, that verb there is the Greek word katargeo. So it, it says that we were crucified with him, that our body of sin, that's our flesh, that's our the sin principle within us, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. He, he, it's almost schizophrenic. The good that I wish I do not do, I do not do the very thing I wish. But if I do not do the very thing I wish, it's not me who's doing it, but sin which indwells me. There is a sin principle in every believer, the flesh, indwelling sin. But what Romans 6, 6 and 7 has said is that when we were crucified with Christ, it's the translation in the New American Standard says, that our body of sin might be done away with. But that's not what katargeo really means. Katargeo means rendered inoperative or the power broken or the authority disconnected. Like, um, let, let's say, just for the sake of illustration, I used to work for Art. He was my boss. If he told me to do something, I had to do it. And he wasn't a very good boss. And, and, and in fact, he intimidated me. And he shamed me and made me feel bad about myself. But he was my boss, so I had to do what he told me to do. And then what if somebody else came along and said, I got a much better job for you, and I'm a much better boss, and I'm going to give you much better benefits. Come work for me. So I go, yes. So I go work for him, and then Art shows up and says, what are you doing? Get back to work. And I go, oh, okay, I better do it. And then my new boss says, what are you doing? You don't work for Art anymore. He's not your boss anymore. I'm your boss. In effect, that's what Jesus is saying to us when we just obey our flesh because we have temptations and we're being pulled to it. And we think, well, I have to do it. And Jesus says, no, you don't have to. I broke the power of sin over your life. So 
This is the power of what Romans 6 is actually saying. We are no longer obligated to sin. We're no longer under the dominion of sin. We're no longer under the rulership of sin. We still may be tempted. There might be all these old tapes that we relay in our head. We might actually, there may be many times in our life where we actually feel the pull to sin stronger than we feel the pull to righteousness. But how do we live? By our feelings or by faith? By faith. See? That's why this faith principle is so important. So Paul says, our old self was crucified on the cross so that this body of sin doesn't control us anymore. We can say no to it. We can say, flesh, I'm not going to obey you. I'm going to obey Jesus. Flesh, I'm not going to believe your lie. I'm going to believe the truth of God, that I've been set free, and I've been crucified with Christ. And the truest thing about me is what God says is true. And I have resurrection life inside of me. But I just want to be very upfront and very truthful with you. This is a, this is a spiritual truth that you've got to renew your mind in all the time. Because the lie is firmly embedded within us. The lie that, that we have to sin. The lie that I have to satisfy my own desire. The lie that God's not going to take care of me, I need to take care of myself. The lie that sinning is a better option than obedience. The lie that, well, if I don't feel like being righteous, it's inauthentic to try to be righteous. I'm being legalistic. Faith, I I like to say this, I say this in my church a lot. I don't think anywhere in the Bible does it say, fake it till you make it. But we're to faith it until we feel it. Faith it until you feel it. Live by faith. Live by what God says is true. And as you consistently, as I consistently live by what God says is true, it's like I'm opening up new neural pathways in my brain so that I, I actually start to become transformed. My mind is renewed, and I actually believe what God says is true is truer than anything else. Because Romans 6 says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I've been raised up with Christ, and I've been set free from the rule of sin in my life. All right, now let's look at Colossians 2. I'm just trying to establish a lot of scriptures, and then I'm going to give you some just very quick application points. So are you with me? Colossians chapter 2, because this this truth I'm telling you tonight, that we're co-crucified, co-resurrected, and co-seated with Jesus Christ, it is all over Paul's writings. And it's the establishment of, of... of how to live the Christian life. There is a principle, uh, and this is another gra- grammar thing that I, that, that, you know, I, I mentioned to you that, you know, oh, grammar, but there's great things to learn from it. There's a principle in the New Testament called the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is what actually is, and the imperative is what's commanded to be. Paul, the way he writes his letters is he first gives us the indicative. This is what's actually true. You're a new person in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing. And then he says, and now this is what ought to be true. You ought to walk in new life. You ought to love your neighbor. You ought to put on a heart of compassion. You ought to say no to sin. If all you ever focused on was the imperative and you didn't deal with the indicative, you're just being like the Pharisees. You're just throwing a bunch of rules on how to follow trying to be Christ-like with no power behind it. See, the power behind it is what's true about us. So you got to start there and really soak in how we've been set free and what is true about our relation with Christ. So then you live out new life, and it makes perfect sense to do it. Okay, so here's Colossians 2. Uh, Colossians 2, 10. He says, uh, And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision not performed by human hands, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So in Romans 6, Paul uses baptism as the metaphor to teach this truth about having died with Christ, having been raised up with Christ. Here in Colossians, he uses baptism, and then he also uses an Old Testament custom circumcision he says even circumcision 
was an object lesson for the Jewish people to teach them something deep, deeply spiritual about what God does in our life. So in Christ, it says we've been brought to fullness. So we were filled up with Christ. And we were circumcised, spiritually circumcised. And Paul says, I'm not talking about cutting off the flesh. I'm saying your old nature, your old you, who you were in Adam, that was cut off so that you might put on a new nature who you are now in Christ. And just so that we could understand it in a little more of a New Testament sense, he comes back to baptism. And he says, we were buried with him in baptism. That symbolizes our old life dying to Christ, in Christ. And then we were raised up with him through our faith in the working and power of God. So Paul says this sign and seal of the covenant in the Old Testament and this sign and seal of the covenant in the New Testament, circumcision and baptism, both were given to teach us something about our identity in Christ. We died to the old, we've been raised to the new. We died to the old, we've been raised to the new. Now, I told you Paul uses this indicative, imperative approach. So looking further into um, uh, Colossians 2, it says here, verse 12, when you were dead in your sins and your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away. He nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Paul says we were dead in sin, but we were made alive in Christ. And, and part of that aspect of being made alive, he says he forgave us for all of our sins. There's a lot of terms in the New Testament that are translated forgiveness. This one is a term that's related to grace. It's charisma, charizomai. And so what it, one term I think I used with you last night was phasis, which means to take away. Charizomai means to cover it with grace. So whatever sin we had, God completely covered it with grace. So God didn't see the sin. He sees the grace that covers it. God didn't see any of your sin. He sees the grace that covers it. That's what we have in Christ. That's part of our fullness in, in Christ. And God, it says, he disarmed the authorities and powers. It's very significant. We're going to come back to this when we look at Ephesians chapter 2. But that phrase, the authorities and powers, is used in Colossians 2. It's used in Romans chapter 8. It's used in Ephesians chapter 1. It's used in Ephesians chapter 6. And it's in Ephesians chapter 6 that we really come to understand, well, what is he really talking about? Because in Ephesians 6, 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, that you might stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers, authorities, spiritual forces in high places, demons. So what this is saying is when Jesus died on the cross, he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the debt that we owed to God. He fully, completely transformed our nature. And he was victorious and triumphed over Satan and his demons. Jesus has full, absolute victory and triumph in the spiritual realm. We're going to come back, so hold on to that thought, and we're going to come, come back to it. So, this Paul, the, you know, Romans 6, baptism, we died with Christ, we've been raised up with Christ. The, the, the power of our old sin nature over us has been broken. We've been set free from sin. We, we are new people in Christ with a resurrection principle within us. Colossians chapter 2, we have fullness in Christ. We have forgiveness in Christ. We have grace in, in Christ. We have a spiritual circumcision in Christ where our old nature was cut away and we received a new nature. And in baptism, we died 
to sin and were raised up through the power and working of God and in that cross of Jesus Christ, there's full victory over even demonic forces and spirits that would be aligned up against it. Paul says, Colossians 2.20, Since you died with Christ to the elemental, elementary spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? So it's a rhetorical question at the end of Colossians 2. It's, it's like, you died to all this old stuff, so you don't have to still be bound by it. You, you don't have to submit yourself to it. You don't have to be a, a, a victim to spiritual forces or spiritual practices that, will, that are destructive for you because you've been set free because of your identity with Christ. So instead, he says, and this is how he begins Colossians chapter 3, since then you have been raised up with Christ. It's a, it's a fact. This is what's true about you. You've been raised up with Christ. Since then you've been raised up with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above. There's the indicative. There's the imperative. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. There's the imperative. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's the indicative. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you're also going to appear with him in glory. There's the indicative. So in Colossians 3, 1 to 4, he says some things that are true and some things that ought to be true because of the things that are true. That makes sense? So there's some, he says there's things that are true. There's some things that ought to be true. And they ought to be true because of the things that are true. What's true? You've been raised up with Christ. And your life is hidden with Christ. So what ought to be true? Set your mind on the things above. And set your heart on the things where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. It makes sense to do that. Because that's where you actually are. You're with Christ. Seated with Christ. Raised up with Christ. Last passage. Ephesians 2, 1-7. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. And all of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ. So what's true about who we used to be? We were dead in trespasses and sins. But what did God do because of his rich love and, and mercy? He made us alive together with Christ. And he raised us up with Christ. And he seated us with Christ. Now, do you believe that Christ died? Do you believe that Christ was raised? Do you believe that Christ ascended and seated, was seated at the right hand of the Father? According to Ephesians 2, 1 to 7, then you have to believe that you died, you were raised, and you were seated with Christ. Because what Paul does, he takes the verb and he puts a little preposition next to it, sigma, upsilon, nu, soon. And so we were made alive with Christ. We were raised up with Christ. We were seated with Christ. Being seated with Christ. So what do we know about where Christ has been seated? It's the right hand of the Father. Um... If you just read back a few verses, the last few verses of Ephesians chapter 1, which then lead into Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's praying a prayer. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened and that you might receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And you might know the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance for you and the saints. And you might know the incomparable power that he demonstrated when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus Christ, in his resurrection and ascension, we saw in Colossians, what did he do at the cross? He triumphed over demonic spirits. And what does it say in Ephesians 1? When he was ascended and seated, 
It was above all rule, authority, power, dominion, all the demonic spirits. Christ's position right now is a position of absolute spiritual authority. Jesus has authority over Satan. Jesus has authority over demons, seated at the right hand of the Father. But what's true about us? We were made alive with Christ. We were raised up with Christ and seated with Christ. Here, this, and this may be a brand new spiritual truth for you, but it is a liberating, empowering truth. In Christ, every believer has spiritual authority over the demonic. In Christ. In Christ. I don't have to yell at Satan or yell at demons. I just have to know who I am in Christ and exercise my authority as a believer. Now, Satan and demons are powerful angelic beings. If I was to go toe-to-toe with one of them, they'd make, make mincemeat out of me. I don't have the power to defeat the devil and demons, but I have the authority in Christ. Um, if, if we were down, down the hill and there was a big expressway, um, Trucks, cars going, you know, 55, 60, 65, 70 miles an hour. If someone walked out into the road and held up their hand, you know, if the driver didn't have any concern, they just plow through them. They wouldn't have any power to stop the car. But if that driver happened to get out of a highway patrol car and was wearing the uniform of a highway patrol officer and stood out in the road and held up his hand, He wouldn't have the power to stop that car, but you know what he does have? The authority. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're co-crucified, co-resurrected, and co-seated with Jesus Christ. We have the spiritual authority to win the spiritual battle. We have the spiritual authority to be free from sin, and we have the spiritual authority to rebuke the demonic. In Christ. This is, this is stuff in Christ. You try to do it outside of Christ, well, there's a story in the book of Acts where, where Paul rebukes this, this demon that comes out of this girl, and these, these guys that were sorcerers, they were called the sons of Sceva, they were Jewish exorcists, that they, they made money off telling people that they could cast out demons. They saw Paul do it, and so they came up, and they dealt with someone who was de- demonized, and they said, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I rebuke you. And if you remember the story, the demon said, well, we certainly know who Jesus is, and we've heard about Paul, but who are you? And then the demons beat these guys up. This is not an incantation. That's my point. And, and it's not even just something, well, I heard my preacher say that I have spiritual authority, so I rebuke you, Satan. No, you have to be living in the fullness of who you are in Christ. And living in the fullness of who you are in Christ, you can exercise your spiritual authority. Just like living in the fullness of who you are in Christ, you can say no to sin and have freedom from habitual sin. Living in the authority of Christ, you can say no to some addiction and have freedom from some demonic stronghold. Living in the authority of Jesus Christ, you can live in the fullness and power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this is, this is the kind of stuff that the evil one is going to lie to us about and tell us it's not true, you're fooling yourself, it works for the preacher, but it isn't going to work for you, that's just a bunch of hogwash. No, you're, that's, those are lies that you just have to say, I don't believe the lies, I believe the truth. I believe the truth. Okay, um, I just have a few minutes to wrap this up. And these are the summary statements of what I've been saying, okay? Number one, we've died with Christ to sin's control over our lives. That's what the Bible says. We may, out of ignorance or out of carnality, submit ourselves back to sin. But we don't have to. Because we've died to sin's control over our lives. Number two, we've been raised up with Christ to live a new life. That's the purpose of of this identity. It's to live a new life, not just to kind of know some theological things about us, but to actually live it. Thirdly, Christ now lives his resurrection life in us. 
Christ lives this resurrection life in us. When my kids were little, we used to give them baths, and they would all be in the bathtub, you know, taking their bath and playing with their toys. And I had an Ernie puppet from Sesame Street. And I would sit at the, at the outside the bath. I'd put my hand in the Ernie puppet. I'd lift the Ernie puppet up. I'm not a ventriloquist. I'm talking, but my kids are looking at Ernie like Ernie's alive. Oh, hi, boys and girls. How you doing? You got a rubber ducky in there? Oh, rubber ducky, rubber ducky. He's the ducky. He's the ducky that I love. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Kylie. Hi, Ashton. How you doing? They're fixated on Ernie. They thought Ernie was alive. But it was my hand up inside Ernie and me talking. Any real spiritual life that you manifest or I manifest is not about me or you. It's Jesus in us. See, I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. The resurrected Jesus Christ lives in us. And what part of the Christian growth experience is to get us out of the way so that it's Jesus thinking through our minds and speaking through our mouths and loving through our hearts and living through our bodies and choosing with our wills. And the last thing, and, I, and I'll pick this up a little bit again tomorrow night. Um, just because I want to spend a little time on this. We've been seated with Christ to a place of victory and spiritual authority. We, we actually have Christ's authority. And that affects the way we pray, and that affects the way we approach the spiritual battle. And when we come to understand this truth, not, not just theologically, but it goes from our head to our hearts, it, it really changes the whole way we live our lives. It, our identity determines our destiny. Because we are seated with Christ. We, we have Jesus living in us, and we have the full authority of Jesus in terms of how we live our lives. And, and Jesus wants to live through us in a way that we're world changers. We're shining his light. We're bearing his fruit. We're advancing his kingdom. We're bringing people to heaven with us. And we do that in the full authority of Jesus living in us and, and through us. So just scratching the surface on this. Tomorrow night we're going to pick this up again because we're talking about what does this mean to be in Christ and to have Christ in us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word and its liberating truth. Help me uh, in the next couple of nights just to make this as clear as possible. And may I live it out myself. And may we, may we be transformed, each of us. May the truth set us free. That's what we long for. We want to know the truth and we want the truth to set us free. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.